Welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, EFG's weekly podcast. I'm Daniel Murray. I'm Global Head of Research and Deputy CIO. With me today, I'm delighted to have my old friend George Buckley join me. Uh, George and I have known each other for, uh, I think, about 30 years now, quite a long time. George has had an illustrious career uh, in the city. Some of you, I'm sure, will have seen George on uh, television or will have seen George quoted in the FT. Uh, he was formerly Deutsche Bank's chief UK economist. Uh, he's now chief UK economist and head of European economics at Nomura. Uh, he is also um, chair of the Society of Professional Economists. Uh, he won their annual uh, Rybzinski Prize for his essay on uh, on spare capacity. And he is a published author, having published the book, What You Need to Know About Economics, uh, way back in 2011. So, so really pleased to have George with me today. George, I think it's uh, particularly timely to have you with us uh, the day after the Chancellor's spring statement. So what was that all about? Was it good or bad? Well, thanks, Dan. First of all, it's a very, very warm welcome. Um, yeah, and I, I spent a lot of the day yesterday digesting what the Chancellor had said in the UK. Um, he he did a few things to help the consumer and households. I think one interesting thing was that we we have this Office for Budget Responsibility, which which vets all the forecasts, makes sure that they add up, etc. And what they said was that the increase that we've seen in the cost of living, the Chancellor's decisions over the last few months, including yesterday, probably addressed about one third of that. Now, that's not a criticism, by the way, of the Chancellor. I think you know it's only right that we, we shouldn't try and offset every last move in things like inflation and other things. But it, it does show just how significant the cost of living crisis is, uh, with inflation rates likely to rise to 8%. I've heard some people talking about double digits over the course of the next few months, um, which would be quite a shocker if, if we saw that, but not, not impossible. So they did... They did quite a bit. They they um, they they lowered fuel duty, for example. They um, they increased the allowance on national insurance. A lot of little things, which have all add up to around about a maybe just under half a percent of GDP in yesterday's announcements. Thanks, George. So uh, I think it's a really helpful overview. I mean, one of the challenges, you know, the Chancellor clearly faces is that he's just spent a whole load of money supporting the economy through COVID. He's under pressure to balance the books. And at the same time, he's now been hit with another crisis that was completely unexpected and that, uh, you know, places a burden on uh, on individuals, as you, as you highlighted. Um, so how does he get that balance right between ensuring that the UK economy is well supported, that people in lower incomes don't suffer too much, but at the same time presenting the UK as uh, you know, a reliable um, uh, you know, country from which to, you know, to which to lend money? Well, I suppose the good news is, is in, in, in the run-up to the spring statement, which we saw yesterday, uh, the, there was a, a huge improvement in the public finances to, to the tune of around about 1% of GDP. And in fact, if you look at the Chancellor, or the Office for Budget Responsibility's own forecast for the deficit in the last fiscal year, which is just about to end, that they've lopped about 2.5% of GDP off it relative to what they previously thought. So in some ways, he's, he's had a good run over the past few months because what's happened to the actual data, the public finance data, the budget deficit numbers on a month-by-month -month basis has been very good for him. He's been able to uh, use that money to help finance um, uh, the, uh, the, some of the... Um, 
uh, some of the, uh, the offset to this cost of living crisis. But as you rightly say, you've got to bear in mind that looking over the longer term, the last thing you want to do is is not to consider, especially when you've got some big demographic challenges to overcome, like aging populations, people becoming um, or spending more, for example, on health services. You, you need to think that that is going to have a, a, a big hit on the public finances over a long period of time. Now, this chancellor and all chancellors only are in government for five years before they need to be re-elected, if that sometimes. And um, so clearly, they, they don't necessarily have an eye on that longer term picture. But it's something which um, budget responsibility committees tend to look at in a little bit more depth. And I would I would certainly highlight that that's a really important area which chancellors need to look at when they're allocating funds. No, absolutely. That, that of course, is the curse of politics. It's that uh, politicians always have one eye on the election cycle and have to bear their policies in mind against that. Now, you mentioned inflation earlier and how some people are talking about double-digit uh, forecasts. We, I think um, the OBR, I think their peak was 8.7% um, for this year. So, you know, incredibly high by um, local, you know, by, by recent standards. What, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on inflation? There's, you know, broadly two views. One, one camp is that uh, the adjustments we're seeing at the moment are just price level adjustments that will wash out in uh, a year or two's time. And there's another view that actually this is the start of a return to uh, more embedded inflation. What, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, strangely enough, I was just—I just did an, another podcast earlier for for Nomura, and uh, the, one of the questions I was asked on that is, "Are you expecting?" to be surprised again on inflation going forward. I mean, I don't think any economist would ever admit that we think we're going to be surprised, because if they were, they clearly would be admitting that they haven't got their forecast properly aligned. Um, so well, we have a set of forecasts. Those forecasts are for inflation to go up again. But just look at the last five prints from the UK. Every one of those five prints has been higher than we expected, everyone. And so we have to bear in mind that maybe the models have been a bit wrong, although how you can model uh, the impact of um, an unknown potential invasion from a month ago into these figures is obviously very difficult. Uh, so you have to bear in mind that energy price movements and food price movements, we're seeing big increase in food prices now as well, uh, as, 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 as we've seen across the globe. Um, those are feeding in uh, to, uh, to to our forecast. Now, one of the big questions is is really what does this do for medium-term inflation? Because there is no guarantee that higher inflation now necessarily means higher inflation in the future. And of course, that's what central banks are really interested in, is where it's going to settle. Is it going to settle at the 2% target? Is it going to be above or below that? And and I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto that uh, question shortly. But in short, um, it really depends upon how quick energy prices and food prices come back down. Uh, and that requires um, an element of forecasting what is going to happen in Russia, Ukraine. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in forecasting what's going to happen in wars. So our forecasts are subject to much more than the usual uncertainty. And even, even with the usual uncertainty quite high, uh, these are even, even more uncertain. Uh, but if, 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 if energy prices stop rising and possibly even decline, the base effects and the hit to inflation will be enormous. So at some point in the future, I would expect to see collapses in inflation, but it's just not going to happen this year. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a useful way of thinking about things, but clearly it's very difficult. And these hugely uncertain events, um, 
well, by definition, they're unpredictable and can cause these massive shocks. I guess the analogy there, obviously, is with the 1970s and the, the two big oil price shocks there. You, you know, sometimes uh, we are often questioned about the possibility of a return to 1970s-style stagflation. Uh, do you think that's a risk for the UK? Or indeed well, for any other the, country? Uh, one of the surveys that we monitor quite closely is the CBI's Industrial Trends Survey. It's been going a very long time, one of the few surveys that goes back to 1970s. Uh, we've just had this week the prices index. So this is output prices. Um, and it's an index it's, or a balance. It's not telling you what prices are actually rising by. It's just a balance of people seeing prices go up versus down. Uh, and what it shows is that that's the highest since the 1970s. We've never had a higher prices balance in this survey. So in some senses, we're back there already. But again, the key question is, what, what do central banks do about it? I have no doubt whatsoever that inflation will ultimately end up back at 2%. Now, you might think that's a very confident thing to say, but all I'm doing is expressing my confidence in central banks that they will, on balance and in the future, achieve their inflation targets, nothing more. The bigger question is what they need to do with monetary policy to get inflation back there. And to my mind, that's a much more important question um, than, than, than where inflation will be in the future. I'm, I'm confident about the 2%. I'm just not confident about how much rates need to rise to achieve that. So one way that historically economists would have thought about that is you, know, you take inflation and then you add on a premium for real rates and you need to have real rates perhaps somewhere as high as four percent in order to bring inflation under control, but that in turn might imply interest rates moving to fourteen percent in the UK, which would be a bit of a shock. Do you think that's a reality? Uh, no, I, I don't think we're going to see fourteen percent rates. I mean, uh, what I, I think what's much more likely is that the Bank of England and other central banks acknowledge that debt levels relative to to uh, to incomes. Uh, and GDP are a lot higher than they used to be. So if you look at, for example, mortgage debt or, or government debt, much higher. So if you therefore tighten policy, that the impact of a possible policy tightening could be a lot higher now than it was in the past, simply because over the last 30 years, we had this, what Mervyn King used to describe as the nice decade, the non-inflationary, consistently expansionary decade. Um, we're a long way from that now. Uh, we've we've seen interest rates fall on a year-to-year -year basis over the course of the 30 years up to the in, in, in the run-up to uh, the uh, well maybe like five years ago, and they were continuing to fall. And what that's done is meant that well, if you want to keep your repayment to income ratio in the housing market exactly the same, you, you can afford to have higher house prices when you've got lower interest rates. So house prices have increased. If house prices have increased relative to income, so too has debt levels because people have to take mortgages out to buy this stuff. And of course, that means that the sensitivity now might be actually quite high. Now, there's some offsetting effects. A lot of people are now moving into maybe from two-year to maybe three, five, ten-year fixed-rate mortgages. But nonetheless, the underlying, the underlying um, uh, um, impact might be a lot greater now from interest rate changes than it was in the past. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair point. Um... But uh, I suppose time will tell on that one. The, the other, I suppose, feature of today's environment that is very different to the 70s is the fact that uh, 
central bank balance sheets have become an integral part of the policy toolkit. And you think that prior to the global financial crisis, it would have been anathema to suggest to a central banker that they would use their balance sheets in the way that they have been used over the past 12 years. The, the Fed has clearly signaled that it wants to shrink its balance sheet at some point this year. It may has been outlined as a possible date. Uh, what about the Bank of England? What, what are they likely to do? Well, they've they've started already in some senses because they're, they're not actively selling their gilt portfolio, but they certainly are letting it roll off. So roll off is already happening in the UK. We had just shy of 30 billion roll off the balance sheet just this month. So they are letting it happen. They said that they would let it happen when interest rates got to 0.5%. And they also said that we will think about the possibility of selling actively gilts when interest rates get to 1%. Well, we're not far off now. Um, and I suspect that it won't be too long until we start to hear from the bank that they are considering or actually going to to allow the balance sheet to uh, to, to be uh, cut by selling gilts uh, in the market. Now, how how much of an impact that has is very is questionable because working out what the impact of QE is is hard enough on the way in, uh, but working out what QT so quantitative tightening does on the way out much more tricky uh, or just as tricky, should I say? And it might well be less of an impact. So you could imagine a situation where you have this ongoing sales of guilt going on in the background, which maybe doesn't have a huge or as big an impact as it did on the way in, in reverse. While the Bank of England uses um, interest rates as the marginal policy tool. So a background of QT, but marginal tool being, being, being the interest rate itself. And that, that will appeal to Andrew Bailey's sensitivities. He's, he's already written a piece in Bloomberg a couple of years ago uh, now, uh, which said that, you know, we're not that keen on having such a big balance sheet. And as soon as we can get rid of it, we will. So I think, um, yeah, further, further, further withdrawal from, from, from gilts and uh, from the gilt market, I think is, is likely from the bank. Do you think they have a sort of target size in mind of the balance sheet they're aiming for and or a methodology for determining how that target size might be calculated? Possibly not yet, but I don't think it'll be long until they announce some sort of um, reasoning for where they want to get to. Uh, you know, after all, that's what the Fed did the last time we were in this position, um, to try and think about how far you need to go. What is the appropriate level of the balance sheet in normal times these days? How quickly do you want to get there? Because there are some years when the UK um, guilt holdings do not fall that much just simply from roll-off. This year is one of them. The uh, Over the next year or so, I think we've only got about 9 billion rolling off the balance sheet. So if they were going to do anything, why not do it this year? And contrast that to the ECB, which has said that it still intends to purchase, or probably probably will purchase uh, uh, on, on the APP, the Asset Purchase Programme, possibly until the end of September. So they're still buying uh, when we've got inflation at these levels, the Bank of England's actually considering actively selling. So a very different um, different strategy from the, the ECB, but that's changing. Yeah, the ECB comparison is uh, is interesting. Clearly, they are more negatively impacted, at least in the short run, by events in Ukraine, but probably also some, some longer-term challenges there in terms of energy supply, but also things like demographics. So do you think, you, you know, market expectations about the timing of ECB rate hikes are accurate? In other words, when do you think the ECB is most likely to, to hike rates? We've got we've got a December hike being the first one. And I must say, at the start of the year, I was starting to feel a bit 
a bit concerned about that view because the markets were moving against us. They were looking for at least a couple of hikes uh, in the second half of this year. The things have changed a bit. I mean, we've we've now got the impact of Russia-Ukraine, as you say, it has a much larger effect on, potentially much larger effect on Europe than it does on the UK. Uh, Europe, of course, shares a number of land borders uh, with, with, uh, with Russia and Ukraine, which means that, of course, the impact, the direct impact of trade is going to be higher as it is. But on top of that, you've got the effect of the fact that in Europe, on average, in the euro area, should I say, on average, the total amount spent on food and energy within the CPI, the Consumer Prices Index basket, is about 25%. It's about half that in the UK. So even without borders between Russia, Ukraine and Europe, it's still the case that global prices of food and energy will have a bigger impact uh, on the downside to to European uh, GDP and household consumption. Yeah, that's a a very interesting uh, comparison you make there. I mean the uh, the sort of the other big thing that we seem to have forgotten about is uh, our friend Brexit. So um, you know what with COVID and now the situation in Ukraine, uh, Brexit is you know clearly uh, represents a major shift in terms of the way the UK economy operates and its standing in the world. Uh, whether you know it's relations with the EU, whether it's just global trade relations in terms of labour markets, whatever it might be, uh, what are your thoughts about how Brexit will play out, and how indeed how important it will be for the UK economy over the next few years? I think actually, however. Um, whatever forecast that you hear from economists on Brexit in terms of what Brexit's done to the economy or what it might do to the economy, you know, we need to take with a pinch of salt because we're experiencing major shocks here, which almost make Brexit look like the, the small bit player. I don't think we would have said that beforehand, but you know, if you go back to 2019, Brexit was going to be the the, the biggest effect of of of, uh, of of anything we were looking at. But along came COVID, and along came the the, the Russia-Ukraine war, the huge increases in energy prices. This means that the impact of Brexit is very very difficult to distinguish, indeed. Um, but the government is trying to, I believe, get about four fifths of all of its trade covered over the course of this year by free trade agreements. Now, whether it'll do that is questionable, given the fact that the US, which of course is is got other things on its mind at the moment, um, is worth probably maybe between 15 and 20% of, of UK trade. So it's going to be difficult to achieve that. I think we're currently at about 65%, but the, the, the point is it, it, it's not an easy thing to to um, get back the trade deals as quickly as we would like, or get new trade deals indeed. Um, so it will continue to have an effect. Whether we're going to be able to discern how much that effect is by looking at the data is going to be difficult. Uh, yeah, when uh, the country voted for Brexit and Boris Johnson obviously was instrumental in that, uh, the politicians on that side of the argument claim that there would be major benefits to being outside the EU. Um, do you think we're seeing any evidence of those benefits? Do you think it's just lost in the noise, as you alluded to, of uh, COVID and, and now Russia-Ukraine? Do you think there will be benefits in the future? Well, I guess we'll have to see what they manage to pull out of the bag when it comes to the US. But is the US going to replace uh, all of the, um, the, the the deals that we had before? I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, the 
it, it, I suspect that you're absolutely right on the, the point about it's going to be very difficult to detect in the data uh, whether we've got. And, and also the, the other point to mention about Brexit is this is a very long run issue. If you look at most of the expectations about Brexit, that they're, they're all about what happens to GDP relative to what would otherwise have happened. And of course, who knows what even that would have been um, in, in the long run. So what's the 15, people look at what's the 15 year impact of Brexit. And most economists, I mean, the, the, the Office of Budget Responsibility actually did a survey of economists looking and economists um, uh, uh, articles looking at how much of an effect it would have. And you know, it ranged from about four to six percent off GDP, but over 15 years. So it's not something which is, you know, you could easily look at in a month or two's data or, or even a year or two's data, I don't think. Uh, it could be a, a much longer issue uh, as to whether we're able to uh, capitalise or not on this. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Maybe from one year to the next, one might not notice much difference, but over a long period of time, this sort of compounded effect uh, builds up. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, perhaps just one further comment on Brexit and uh, like, your opinion on it is um, that uh, you know, the UK has historically relied heavily on uh, imports of European labour, former often you know, Eastern European countries, um, and uh, exporting labour to the UK. That door is now less open than it used to be. Does that mean that uh, you know, inflation is stickier in the UK than it is elsewhere, either at the wage level or indeed at the aggregate price level? Yeah, I think that's certainly a possibility. I mean, if, if you look, for example, at the at the number of um, uh, people who've who've left the labour force, um, look, for example, at non-UK employees, it's down by someone somewhere in the region since since the start of 2020 by around just over 200,000. You can account for all of that change in the number of. Uh, non-UK workers by looking at two sets of countries, the EU8, the accession eight countries, uh, so the Eastern European countries, and Romania and Bulgaria. So those 10 countries can account for more than all of the change in non-UK employment. And of course, they were bringing labour, which was much cheaper at the margin. And and this is, it reminds me a bit of the, um, going back to what we learned at university here, but Beaumont's contestability theory. You don't need these people to actually come into the labour force. They just needed to be able to come into the labour force because then your UK employers will turn around and say, look, if you don't work for less, we're going to hire that person. But they can no longer do that. They can no longer do that. Well, not to the same degree, at least. And so even just not coming in, these people might actually generate uh, a rise in wages. Have we seen it yet? Well, certainly not to the same degree as prices are going up. Uh, the latest figures published this week, in fact, showed a rise in wage settlements of 3%. Now, that's less than half of what inflation is currently doing. So um, we, we've yet to see wages rise significantly, but that might be coming. That's a, that's a good point. Let's uh, let's just turn back to uh, the Bank of England for the moment. So, um, Andrew Bailey, relatively short tenure, hasn't had the smoothest of rides, partly down to events outside of his control, but also partly down to the way that he's handled himself as, as governor. Uh, Mark Carney was famously referred to as an unreliable boyfriend. Is, uh, is Andrew Bailey also an unreliable boyfriend? 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, th- th- this moniker really has stuck with uh, with Mark Carney, and uh, I think it was in a, um, a House of Commons um, room where this was was suggested to him while he was testifying to the to, to the uh, Treasury Select Committee. Um, Andrew Bailey, I mean, as you say, he hasn't had much much time at the helm yet, but. I think it's only fair that, um, that we should give them the uh, ability to change their mind if 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 that's the case. I mean, I, I think, for example, the the issue of the war in Ukraine is a perfect example where we should be willing to change our minds. Um, we were forecasting, for example, a fifty basis point rate hike from the Fed on its first outing in raising interest rates last week. They obviously did twenty five. But they're now thinking that maybe we need to do fifty at upcoming meetings. This is this is how we need to be quite agile and and, and nimble in in changing our forecasts of what needs to be done. And I think you, you can only say that for for central bankers as well that they also need. And this is why I'm not so keen on guidance, to be honest, because guidance can, does, and should change. And you're by issuing guidance, what you're doing is you're only changing the point of the surprise. So, you know, is it a good idea to say, we think that we're going to do this, and then maybe even a few weeks later, days later, in the case of Russia, Ukraine, you have to change your view and say, well, maybe we won't be able to do that. So I think we've got to be very careful about looking at guidance. And, and that's one thing I, I'm, I'm, I, I think it'd be better for them, for central banks, not to, not to issue too tight guidance, because we know it can change. Well, it has become a bit of a mantra over the past few years and accepted, uh, you know, central bank wisdom that they should communicate as much as possible and uh, lead to as few surprises as possible. But it does obviously raise the question about, um, uh, you know, Goodhart's law and whether or not um, policy is effective if it's expected. So and I guess maybe maybe one way to get to get around that is for central banks to try and communicate not where they think rates will go over what time frame, but what what is the how do they operate? What what are they looking at? What's the important bits of data you need to look at? How will we respond to so the reaction function effectively? I think that communicating that is going to be better than telling um, telling us where rates are going to go because no one knows that. Not even monetary policy committees of central banks. No, very true. Very true. That we uh, we mentioned Mark Carney. He is uh, obviously during his tenure at the bank, and also subsequently he has. Bill's name for himself as a supporter of uh, you know, looking at ways in which climate change impacts financial markets. Um, and, you know, ESG is a very hot topic at the moment in financial markets. Um, so, um, you know, how do you think ESG-related matters are going to affect the policy outlook and the economic outlook over the next few years? Um, very significantly and, and in, in, in a few ways. I mean, first of all, you've got the impact of potential climate events, which will impact the economy um, and therefore have to be incorporated within um, central bank forecasts. I mean, that's the sort of direct way, if you will, but that's not really the most interesting thing, I don't think. I mean, these, uh, whatever happens in in terms of surprises have to be incorporated, whether it be uh, climate related or otherwise. But what's more interesting is how central banks are adjusting their policies uh, for, for, for climate. And you know, we've seen, for example, the the European Central Bank um, publish its strategy review um, a year ago, and they have said that that they want to try and um, target things like asset purchases towards 
um, companies which are seen as being greener. You've got the Bank of England, for example, which is doing the same. You've got the Treasury, which is issuing green bonds. Um, look at Germany. I mean, Germany is probably the most uh, obvious example where we now have uh, green politicians in government who are uh, clearly wanting to spend more money. Uh, so fiscal policy being expanded in order to focus on green projects. And you know those sort of things have to be taken into consideration by central banks. The other point is that this thing, you know, green spending does not come at no cost. It, it, it's quite expensive. Uh, shifting, for example, uh, to um, uh, electric cars, for example, it, it it's it's not a cheap thing to do. This is why most electric cars you see driven at the moment are for people who can afford them. Um, and in that case, it's the same with fiscal policy. And it's also the same with inflation. Inflation is likely to be influenced by governments telling households and consumers that they have to go green because it's not a cheap thing to do. Um, I wouldn't want to think about replacing my car at the moment with a with a greener model, just simply because of the cost. Uh, but I imagine at some point that it's going to I'm going to have to do, and that's a cost to people. It's cost to society. But ultimately, the the you'd hope that that cost would be seen into in, in terms of what it's done for the for the for the world, which is to re, to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels and to move to a much more greener. Uh, a greener environment but it's a again it's another one of those long-term issues that we need to consider uh, indeed it certainly does seem to be going just in one direction at the moment which uh, is probably no bad thing for the planet but as you know uh, very real costs associated with that um in terms of uh you know we talked about monetary policy and the potential there for the bank of england to uh to tighten quite a lot i think we've got five rate hikes priced into the market at the moment we also talked about how the chancellor has managed to do a little bit at the moment but he's constrained by the need to uh present the uk as fiscally responsible so we've got a quite tricky environment where tightening monetary policy fiscal policy not as loose as it might have been and still legacy impact of some measures that were implemented last year that perhaps will uh, squeeze people a bit. Um, you know, it doesn't sound too optimistic for the UK economy. Has the OBR got it wrong? Is, uh, you know, is growth going to be a, a bit tougher for the UK? Well, I mean, let's just abstract from Russia, Ukraine for a moment, because we've obviously spoken a bit about that. But in terms of COVID, I mean, it's got to be good news that we're no longer spending on COVID measures uh, relative to what we used to. I know if you look at the figures by themselves, it looks like, oh gosh, the, the government's now spending this much less than they were before. Well, there's a good reason for that. And because COVID is not having the same impact on the economy, the service sector, as we've seen from some of the PMI surveys uh, just this week, have been, um, we, we've seen the service sector expanding more. Um, it, it's likely to continue. We're going to see some sort of transition between people spending on goods and services going out more. It'll be good for the economy. And that, that can only be good news that they don't have to spend money on things like furlough schemes. We've got the unemployment rate down at levels below 4% in the, uh, the, the UK. Uh, we've got it below 7% in the euro area these are these are good numbers and the fact it means that they don't need to spend as much is i think quite encouraging yeah i think that's a good point i think people often forget about the difference between discretionary and non-discretionary spending and a lot of the covid related spending although it was related to a shift in policy was in effect not really discretionary it was uh, forced upon governments um perhaps let's just turn you know slightly more esoteric and philosophical subject matter which is economics you know you and i both studied economics together i taught in a very traditional way 
famously, I think it was during the financial crisis, Michael Gove chastened economists and made crude references to how we don't need experts and so forth. Uh, do you think economics is just taught badly? It needs an overhaul. It's, you know, something that needs modernizing into the 20th century. You know, given your experience in, in writing your book on economics, what lessons would you uh, sort of use there in terms of uh, how economics should be taught today? Yeah, I think you're very right. It, it, it probably does need uh, an overhaul in terms of how it's taught. I mean, we've seen just over the course of the, the, the past few years, drastic changes in, in the ways that economies work. Um, but that said, you know, some of the principles, I think, are still very valid. For example, if you think about the Phillips curve, the Phillips curve tells you that if you're trying to forecast inflation, then one thing that you should really include is some measure of the output gap. The output gap obviously being the difference between where GDP actually is and where you think it, it could be, so some potential GDP. So if GDP is above potential, it causes inflation to rise. If it's below potential, it causes inflation to fall. That is still, a, a, I imagine, it should be a really important uh, part of economics. The problem is, find me anybody who can forecast accurately what the output gap is right now. So the theory is tremendous. You know, some of the theories work really well in theory, but in practice, trying to put them into practice, it's exceptionally difficult. And over and above that, if you think that the globalization of the of, of economies over the past few years has has meant that maybe it's not the domestic output gaps which are that important. It could be global output gaps, for example. But there's a whole host of things like this we could talk about in terms of in terms of uh, where economics is going. And uh, you know, it's been a long time since I studied economics at, uh, at school and university, but. Uh, um, I think some of the policies, so some of the the, the, the teachings are, are still valid and will always be valid. Yes, I, I suspect you're right. There's, uh, you know, I think as we've seen with the uh, current crisis in Ukraine and Russia, actually the old rules about supply and demand they still hold very much true, and as you know, clearly hugely uh, evident in the prices of various commodities, especially energy. So, I think that probably tells you that the old models might need to be adjusted, but uh, they're not completely dead yet. <laughs> But perhaps we do need, at the same time, uh, the ability to refresh some of the ways that we think about the world. George, I'd just like to finish up by asking you, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of change during your tenure working as an economist in the city and in your role as chair of the SPE, you also are in touch with the profession and, uh, yeah, see a broad range of roles in which economists play a role. What advice would you give to someone who today was thinking about uh, yeah, becoming an economist. Yeah, it's a, a difficult question. It's become very competitive, of course, in 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 markets to to do these sort of roles. Um, so you know, think of alternative channels that you can get involved in the financial sector. You don't have to be an economist at a bank like like I am, for example, or an economist an economist at an asset manager. There's there's plenty of uh, other ways that you can get involved and, and get a foot in the door. I mean, how did I get a foot in the door? I, I decided that well, given I couldn't get a job. Back in the early days of the 1990s, I thought, I know, I'll do a master's and a PhD. That, that's bound to get me a job. It did, but it took me a long time to get it. So, you know, it, it, do you really want to spend that much money and time and effort just to get to where you want to? It, there may be other ways to do it. Um, but doing an economics degree, and I, to be honest, if you, if you were to ask me what, what was the most important part of, of my education, and if I was to stop somewhere, 
where would I stop and say, I've got enough education to do what I'm doing right now? For sure, the PhD was was very useful because it meant that I learned to research by myself. And But did I need to go that far? I'm not sure I have a great deal of new econo- econo- economic or econometric models that I use on a day-to-day basis in my job that I got from my PhD, which I didn't get, for example, from my bachelor's. So I think a bachelor's degree, absolutely. Master's, very helpful. It only takes an extra year. But certainly, I- I'm not sure if you need to go as far as I did. Still, I'm sure being a student for such a long period of time was a lot of fun. So it has its advantages. Did indeed. George, thank you so much for joining me today. Really enjoyed the conversation. And I hope our listeners enjoyed it too. This has been Beyond the Benchmark with me, Daniel Murray, with uh, my uh, guest. I'll very please join us today, George Buckley. Thank you for listening. And um, if you have any follow up questions, please contact your EFG representative. Thank you. <laughs>